since you wanted to skip right over that. <laughs> psalm 6. Uh, this is going to be a psalm of lamentation and confidence. And we see there, starting with the title, For the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. O Lord, Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, Yahweh, how long? Return, Yahweh, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death and Sheol. Who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For Yahweh has heard the voice of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. So, what do we have here? Well, we have a psalm with vivid imagery of lament. And we just see that coming out with the, uh, I mean, just, just that, that, verse 6 there, the sighing. I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye is wasted away with grief. We, we, we can imagine that and empathize with that and place ourselves right there with the psalmist. But I'm sure we've all gone through times like that. Well, this is the first of seven penitential psalms as well. Penitential psalms meaning uh, psalms where he is expressing remorse over sin. And so Psalm 6 uh, is the first of those. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are both psalms to know because those are psalms written after the affair with Bathsheba. And so those are two that really stand out. And 51 is cited quite a bit uh, by folks as uh, we talk about or think about the subject of penitence and repentance. Um, and what do, what do we mean by each of those words? Repentance is actually the turning from sin. Penance, sometimes we use that word to mean paying for sin. And that's a, that is a word that you'll often see in Catholic contexts as uh, the priest that you're confessing your sins to will sometimes uh, assign you penance. Uh, and that is a sign of your penitence. Uh, but penitence really is uh, just sorrow over sin. And uh, this is the lament 
that's being being expressed here. And we see here, starting in verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 1, that this is a confession. Uh, Lord, or Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. We, we, we see that there's a reason for the Lord to rebuke David. There's a reason for the Lord to be angry at David. There is a reason for him to be chastened. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. Now, this also has been said that, that it could be related to health. Perhaps he's getting older. And so verse 2, uh, he's pining away. His bones themselves are dismayed. Um, and then you can see in verse 5, he mentions death. He sees death as a very real possibility for him. And so he, he may be getting older. Uh, he may be getting more aged, and that's why he is praying in the way that he's praying. But there is also this soulish element. This is something that we sometimes uh, neglect, especially in our world. We tend to think of uh, either problems as being only physical, or we tend to think of problems as only being spiritual and emotional, and, so, and there are usually elements of both that we have to deal with. There, there is a physical element. There is, a, there is a, um, a spiritual element. Sometimes the spiritual element can lead to physical ailments, and sometimes the physical ailments can tempt us in spiritual ways. And so we have to be able to address both when we are uh, addressing someone who is having troubles. So as we think about this, oh, there we go. All right. My notes were all squished up on one side there. The win of this psalm is unclear. The win of the psalm is unclear. We're not entirely sure what is happening. It, it, it may be that this is when David is fleeing from Absalom, which is something we've already considered. But we don't often think of David's age in as an aspect or a factor with his fleeing from Absalom, but he was older at that time. He's not, it's not like he's the young man uh, who's fleeing from Saul, who's going to be crowned king one day uh, and really has already been anointed king. Um, this is an aged David who's already had his wives, already had grown children. And so he's quite a bit older now he's on the run. So, so that may be the case. Warren Wearsby notes this. He says, it could have been composed during the time of Absalom's rebellion when David was old, sick, and unable to handle all the complex responsibilities of the kingdom. David's gradual failure as a visible leader was one of Absalom's selling points as he stole the hearts of the Israelites. And that's in 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 6. But the psalm may have been written at any time during David's reign when he was ill and being attacked by his enemies. And really, as I said, you know, this is, this, this is the praise book, the, the, the prayer book, the hymn book, uh, the psalm book of Israel. They, this is something that is meant to be applicable to God's people. And uh, you know, we can all sympathize with these feelings that he's experiencing. So we keep one eye in the history of this, but we keep the other eye where we are today. 
this is something that can be beneficial to us as we feel, um, you know, the effects of sin in our own lives and feel pressed in. And as we're thinking about that, there is a sharp contrast between verses 1 through 7 and 8 through 10. That's why I paused as I read it, as I did. Because as we go through 1 through 7, there's a lot of pleading with God. There's a lot of statement about what uh, what the psalmist, what David is going through. But verse 8, suddenly he turns and he addresses the adversaries. And he addresses them with quite a bit of confidence that's not really explained in the psalm. And that's where we are sometimes. Sometimes we pray and, and, and we've expressed ourselves before God. And we just have this moment of confidence in what the Lord is going to do. Sometimes it's that way. Sometimes it might be just us thinking through something and God using that. Sometimes it's something else. It might be just a miraculous moment. There's no real explanation for it at all. It's just the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Sometimes he's working through our thoughts. Sometimes he just simply replaces our feelings for some inexplicable uh, reason. Uh, But we see the psalmist turn in that moment, verses 8 through 10, with confidence toward the enemies, knowing that God has heard his cry. And so that's, I find that to be fascinating there. And we essentially see in this psalm three elements of the believer's life. And so as we think about how this might apply to us, we think, okay, well, we all should experience a godly regret over sin. We see this in the psalm. We all should experience a plea for grace, or we should plea for God's grace. And we all should have a confidence in the Lord as verses 8 through 10 express. Well, let's start with that first element um, as, as we get into this, and that's the godly regret over sin. And before we do that, we do get the title, and it is worth noting a couple things about the title since it is part of God's holy and inspired word. We note first that it is for the choir director, and many of these are, are listed for the choir director. Um, of course, in the temple, there, there was a choir director who would be over all the Levites, who would be singing, who would be playing instruments. We see this is for stringed instruments. The King James uh, gives a transliteration of the term, the Neginoth, I think is how you'd say it, Neginoth, or Neginoth, and that is, uh, well, stringed instruments. (laughs) So there you go, Uh, something to to be played uh, with strings. And specifically, it's upon the eight-stringed lyre. And what is that? Well, there's a couple of different ways that lyre is used in, in music today. I remember a marching band, a lyre was actually something that got stuck on the front of the instrument and it would hold your sheet music in front of you. Uh, But this is actually something that that would be plucked. Uh, This is like a like like almost like a fiddle kind of looking thing. Not exactly, but uh, it had eight strings and you could pluck it. Um, The shimmy shimmy Boo, I am, I'm, I'm being horrible with these pronunciations here. Shim and Nith, Shim and Nith, or Shim and Nith, 
uh, is the transliteration of the term, and that's the ESV, the, the Holman, the King James, the, even the LSB has the transliteration there, but it is the eight-stringed harp, and I'm glad that the, that the NASB and the New King James do give us that translation there, so we know exactly what we're talking about. Now, there, there is a translation of it that the MacArthur Study Bible suggests, and it's upon the octave. It's not just the MacArthur Study Bible. I came across this in a couple other commentaries too, but, but, but it, uh, MacArthur explains it's a lower bass melody, or whoever wrote that note, explains it's a lower bass melody to accompany these lyrics of intense lament. And so that's, that's interesting to, to visualize in our mind's eye or our mind's ear, as it were. You know, this is a lower octave song to express that lament, that mourning that would be there. Um, and so the NASB actually does have a footnote here that it could be translated according to the, a lower octave. And so that gives us a little idea of what we have here. One commentary also notes this, um, that if that translation is correct, it may denote the base. And he continues on here, it would then mean that the psalm was, to be, was designed to be sung accompanied with the instruments and with voices appropriate to this octave, the bass voices. The usual bass voice might be supposed to be adapted to the sentiment in the psalm. So that's that's kind of interesting there. Um, and yeah, it's worth noting also that, that that would work well with the previous psalm as well. Uh, there's always a question when we have this, this title that has a period and then it says a psalm of David after that. Is, is that to apply to Psalm 5? And, and the Psalm of David applies to Psalm 6. We're not entirely sure about that. Someone just stuck those numbers in there, Psalm 6, Psalm 5. Uh, did they put those numbers in the right spot? We're not entirely sure, but it does work well with either Psalm. And I think that's something that uh, Dr. Barrick was bringing out as, as we get into this. All right, so verse 1. And again, this begins David's penitent appeal to the Lord. David's penitent appeal to the Lord. And so we said that this was the first of the penitential psalms, and another one, Psalm 38, opens exactly the same way. And so we, we, we have, O Lord, or Yahweh, the covenant name of God, and, and he asks that God, that the Lord, not rebuke him in his anger or chasten, him in wrath. Now, on this idea of rebuking and discipline, we have a lot of thoughts here that we could cover with this. Uh, so let's start with rebuke. Uh, scripture says not to refuse a rebuke. And so this is an interesting thing to read. In Psalm 6, we read, do not rebuke me in, in anger, but in another psalm, in fact, let me have someone read that one. Psalm 141.5. Let's see what that says. Psalm 
Psalm 141.5. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. And so he, there he actually, or the psalmist, uh, there prays, don't let me refuse that. You know, it's, uh, I, 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 I accept that. And so there's, there's a little bit of a, of a contrast painted there. And in some cases, you don't want to refuse a rebuke, but in other cases, you might. Um, another passage, if we think about discipline, um, Scripture says, receive discipline. Let me have someone read Psalm 118, 18. 118, verse 18. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over. Yes. So so there we see uh we see a little bit of praise there. Um let me have someone read Proverbs three, eleven and twelve. Okay. My son, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh, or loathe his ridicule. For whom Yahweh loves, he he reproves, even as a father reproves his son in whom he delights. Excellent. Yeah, so it seems like there's there's quite a bit of a contrast between what David is praying here and what the rest of Scripture says. And the difference is, or the difference are two words, uh, that would be the last two words of each line here, anger and wrath, anger and wrath. That's the, that's the dividing line. The, the word anger literally means, uh, or literally refers to the nostril, and you can say, well, what does that have to do with, with anger? Well, if you ever remember those Bugs Bunny cartoons when bugs would go up and slap the bull right in the face, usually to a little little song, to the beat of a little song there. That bull would get mad, and what would that bull do? <laughs> Breathe out. And that was a sign of that bull getting mad. And, of course, that is a sign of animals getting angry, them breathing out like that. Um, that that's, that's where the word anger in the Hebrew comes from. It's one thing to face the Lord, and it's another thing to face his anger, where you actually can imagine God breathing out in anger uh, over what you are doing. David is sorrowful for his sin, and he doesn't claim that he doesn't deserve it, but he also asks for a reprieve. He also asks for a reprieve. He doesn't ask that it never comes, This is why we call it a penitential psalm. He just simply asks that it not come in the anger and wrath of the Lord. And so here I have the contrast here. Do not rebuke or chasten in your anger or wrath. And so that's the contrast that have been set up there. Uh, 
-hmm. It's interesting to consider how this applies to us as humans because how often do we rebuke or chasten our own children in anger and wrath as opposed to love? I mean, yeah. Love, right? But, but there's times. Yeah, in that moment, right? In that sure. moment, it's like, oh, I just want to shake you, JL. <laughs> wow, that's specific. <laughs> Gail's not listening. As opposed to our loving father. And even when he does it, just like oh, um, one of the songs we were just reading, um, it's out of love. It's out of love. Regardless of the drastic measures he has to take. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. We definitely, and and it's not that you know we don't ever get angry with our children, and um, sometimes anger is a motivation for us to do something about what our child is doing. So it's not like we have to be completely devoid of emotions and emotionless automatons as we are dealing with them. On the other hand, there's a big difference between that and dealing with them in our wrath. You know, right. hey, I'm watching something, you're interrupting me. Uh, right. and, well, and, and there was you know. a foundation for them on, on how, how they should deal with circumstances that arise in their own life. Mm -hmm. If they see us react in anger towards every exactly. thing, well, then they're going to react in anger and drastically. But if they see us be kind and loving, although stern, well, then they're going to approach those, you know, certain situations in the same manner, especially when it comes to them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Also, I, you know, I don't think it's also when we're talking about the wrath of God. Right. Which, <laughs> yeah. Jesus bled and blood. Yes. That's that's a good point, sister. That is a that is a great point. Exactly. Well, verse 2 here, he continues that thought along. And so David, we, we see, asks for something else. He doesn't simply ask for mercy. He asks for grace. And we see there, be gracious to me, Yahweh, or O Lord, for I'm pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. And so we can see more parallels. And again, a lot of the Psalms make much more sense if we think about parallel thoughts that are being formed, because that's exactly what's happening there. Um, he asks not just for a reprieve, he asks for what he doesn't deserve. And so it, you know, he's, he's saying, don't give me what I deserve, give me what I don't deserve. That's what it means to be gracious to someone. Give me what I don't deserve. He asks for the Lord to spare him the punishment and even extend deliverance from his current condition. Now, why is that? Because the first word here he uses is that he's pining away. What does that mean? It means languishing. In one uh, 
one commentary points out the original word here means properly the language languish or droop as plants do that are blighted uh, and then he gives examples uh, from Isaiah uh, fields do this in a drought uh, and it's applied here to a sick person whose strength is withered and gone and so that's 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 what he means he's pining away he's languishing um, and that makes a lot more sense for what he's saying with the second part that his bones are dismayed and that's why he asks for for healing I think I actually have some of that there uh, not just for mercy, but for grace, and then for healing, rapha. Rapha is, is the Hebrew word there. And you might recognize that. Sometimes I've heard churches, you'll have classes, you know, where you go through the names of God. A lot of times they'll say Jehovah, uh, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha. You know, they'll go through those, although there's no J in Hebrew, but that's a whole nother, uh, whole nother discussion right there. Yahweh, Yahweh Rapha, would probably be better. Uh, God, our healer. It's a common verb, and it often describes the miraculous working of God, either to physically or spiritually heal. And so it can apply to both physical and spiritual healing. And I'll give you an example of, of that physical healing is in 2 Kings 28, and really all of that, all of 2 Kings 20 there, you see that, that build up there, but Hezekiah is sick. King Hezekiah is sick. And so he asks Isaiah this, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me, Rapha me? And so that, and, and we can go on from there, A really interesting passage, uh, but uh, just for the sake of time, we'll keep moving. In, in the case of spiritual life, there's a couple of couple of examples in Hosea that we could look at. Hosea 14, for instance, Hosea 14, 4, uh, it says that God will heal Israel's apostasy. And so that's obviously a spiritual ailment. And the idea there is, is again, Rapha. He's going to heal uh, them in a spiritual sense. Hosea 6, 1 Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. And this is an example of the Lord responding in wrath, right? He has torn us, but he will heal. He will rapha us. Uh, he has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Now, obviously, the picture is physical, but the application is spiritual. That, that they will receive a spiritual healing. And as an aside, I, I want to say this. It is okay to pray for physical healing. Obviously, we do that. Uh, and I think that the Lord, when he says, bring your requests before him, he doesn't just mean spiritual requests. He also means physical requests. And we see David actually praying uh, in a physical sense here. Now, I say that with this, false teachers use the term Rapha to promise what God never promised, healing for every physical ailment. God never promises that he's going to heal everything that's wrong with you. And it's sad that, you know, we go through this, but 
God also has a reason for what we go through and why we go through it and how long we go through it. Now, it is true to an extent what they say because we will all receive physical healing one day. We will all be restored physically. And all of our problems from our, from our eyes, glasses, those are going to be gone. We don't wear glasses in the kingdom. Uh, you know, our, our, our problems, our pains, our aches, all of those things are going to be gone. And praise God for that. Um, and God does, in fact, also heal today, sometimes even miraculously, where there is no explanation. There's no human explanation for it. But even with that said, he calls us today to prioritize spiritual healing. And I would say that first applies and foremost applies to salvation. We, we are sin sick and in need of the great physician. And so that's, that's the primary that, the, that, that God calls us to or the primary application. Uh, sometimes we see that the Lord will even allow physical ailments to result from spiritual conditions. Now, that's not true in every case, but the prayer here is a recognition of God's sovereignty over sickness and His, the psalmist, the prayers, the prayers, the person praying, he needs to repent of his sin for release from this physical ailment. And so we do see that. And so he asks for healing. He says his bones are dismayed. And that may even represent the whole body down to the depths. He may be using that as a, as he's saying down to his core, he is dismayed. Uh, his physical aspect is, is completely corrupted by what's going on here. And there's a connection then to body and soul. And even we see that even in the next verse as we continue on. Uh, my soul is greatly dismayed. Um, he says in verse 6, I am weary with my sighing every night. I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch and my tears. Worrying and anxiety then cause physiological effects. What he is going through uh, spiritually is affecting his body. It is affecting his body. And that's one thing that when, so, some, some therapists, they miss that. They, they, they tend to think that whatever is going on, like for instance, anxiety, it must have a physical cause rather than the other way around. Now, I'm not saying there are not physical causes that mimic anxiety and may even trigger thoughts of anxiety because of what's going on, you know, tightness in the chest, it brings back memories of, you know, whatever else, and that triggers uh, anxiety within you. Of course, of course, you know, there can be physical causes that lead to uh, uh, spiritual or, or emotional distress, but we also have to see that it's true the other way around. The spiritual can lead to physical ailments. We have to be able to see that. And it can cause physiological effects where the bones are dismayed, where you are pining away. Um, this, is, this is not just an old man on the run. This is someone who is carrying the weight 
of the betrayal of his son and the knowledge that his son is in the spiritual condition that he's in because the father is in the spiritual condition that he's in. He caused it. He's responsible. David's responsible. And so he is bearing the weight of his guilt over his sins. That's why he starts off by saying, you know, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't chasten me in your wrath. He sees this as connected to his sins, and he sees what he's experiencing in his body as the affliction of the Lord. It's God's hand which is heavy upon him. And so David seeks healing, both physically and spiritually. And we'll go ahead and close with that thought right there. I'll, I'll say, you know, if you, if you think that you are going through what you're going through because of a spiritual cause, then take it to the Lord. Because he, he can not just afflict, he can give grace and healing as well. Uh, and so, so take it before the Lord and, and, and repent of your sins. And that's always the first step that we should take.